Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, New York Rangers fans, and welcome to episode 131 of the New Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercogliano of the USA Today Network, and I am fresh off of a flight home from Toronto. I just walked in the door a little while ago, had a quick lunch, helped make my stepfather a quick birthday cake. We are going over to my mother's house later tonight, so I'm trying to fit this podcast in while I can. And yeah, just life in the middle of the season, running around like a crazy man. That kind of comes with the territory. But I'm coming back from a trip that was, by all accounts, a very successful one for the Rangers. They picked up a 5-2 to two win over the Maple Leafs on Tuesday night. They also picked up a really big win Saturday in Boston over the Bruins. And they have now won three games in a row, which leaves them sitting with the most points in the Eastern Conference and the best points percentage in the entire league. So Rangers, as they have been pretty much all season, sitting in a very strong position. And so to discuss that, where the Rangers stand, where they stand in the current NHL hierarchy, and what might lie ahead for them as we look ahead to the trade deadline and then the playoffs, we're going to have our buddy Jeff Merrick on the show. You guys know him from Sportsnet, the 32 Thoughts podcast. One of the nicest guys you'll find in the business, at least in my experience, and a guy who I love to just have on every once in a while to kind of size up the entire league and where the Rangers stand in that conversation. So we'll have that interview with Jeff coming up in a little while. A little quirky this one. The sound quality might not be up to our usual standards. When Jeff and I had decided last week we were going to do this, it turned out as we chatted yesterday that the only time that worked for both of us today was going to be in the morning while I was sitting at Billy Bishop Airport in Toronto. So you might hear a few announcements in the background. Jeff was actually out walking his dog while we did the interview, but I still think it all came in pretty clear from what I've heard back so far. So definitely worth using. Definitely a fun conversation. Just a little bit of a on the run type of a thing. So you'll hear our airport chat in just a little bit. But first... Let's talk about this trip, and let's talk about everything that's happened since we last spoke. This past week, I think, served as a reminder for all of us about how quickly the narrative can change, not only in the NHL, but in the world of sports. The last episode, now most of the episodes, pretty much all the episodes this season, I think have been overwhelmingly positive because the team has been winning at such a high rate, but I think last week's episode was probably the most negative one so far. Not that I think we were panicking or really up in arms about anything, but just as far as the state of the team in that moment, they 
were at a stage where they had lost three out of their last four. When we recorded last time, they were coming off of a loss at home against the Maple Leafs. And the luster of that hot start to the season was sort of wearing off a little bit. I think concerns from fans, at least some vocal fans, were starting to bubble to the surface. And everybody was wondering, well, the Rangers looked so good when they were winning 18 of their first 23 games this season, were they maybe coming back down to earth a little bit? Was this sort of a recalibration based on winning at a level that really over the course of the season was going to be very, very difficult to sustain? So some of the things that we were talking about last week, some of the things that I was hearing about from fans, we obviously talked a lot about the defense and how they were starting to show cracks in that armor. Specifically, we talked a lot about the defense slipping when it came to odd man rushes against, but there were other areas within that as well that we felt like had been really tight earlier in the season and suddenly weren't quite looking as solid and as stout for the Rangers. We also were starting to worry about the forward depth a little bit with the ongoing injuries to Philip Hedl and Capo Caco and wondering were those effects maybe starting to come into play for this team the longer that they went without those guys. And then what I was definitely, I think, hearing from fans the most about last season was Igor Shosturkin. And were there reasons to be concerned about him when he had lost those three games in a row and was clearly showing frustration both on the ice and off of it. But now, here we sit a week later, and that very much looks like a minor blip on the radar. In speaking to players in recent days, I think they viewed this as maybe not a positive, but they viewed it as a little speed bump that sort of made them all refocus. It made them get back to the principles that had helped them get off to such a good start. I think every once in a while, in all walks of life, but especially in sports, when things are going really well, maybe you get a little bit too comfortable. And so a bit of adversity, a little bit of a slip up, that can serve as a wake up call. And I think it resonated like that very quickly around the locker room. And and there was this sense of confidence that they would come out of it, but there was also this sense of let's nip this in the bud now and not let this fester. And I think they attacked it very much with that mindset. And they got back to, as I mentioned, those principles. And a lot of that to me comes down to structure. The Rangers, I think the biggest improvement that we've seen under Peter Laviolette are the little details within the game. The structure of this system, especially defensively, through all three zones, whether that's forechecking, whether that's neutral zone defense and the neutral zone trap and the 1-3-1, or whether it is defending responsibly in your own end and then breaking out of your own end, all of those things seem to slip a little bit for the Rangers for really only about... A couple weeks, I think, if you look at some of the advanced analytics, but it only slipped as far as wins and losses for about a week or so. And now what we've seen in these last three games is the Rangers very much get back to that. And when they have that structure in place, then I think this team is able to win even on some nights when other things aren't clicking. Some nights maybe when they're not scoring at a high rate. Some night when maybe some of their stars like Artemi Panarin and Mika Zibanejad and Adam Fox. Those guys haven't been brilliant every single night. Panarin, I think more so than anyone else, has certainly had a lot more really good nights than 
the rest. But there have been nights where those guys aren't carrying the team in the way that we've seen them sort of have to do in the past. But when they stick to that structure, when they play responsible, when they don't make critical mistakes, then this team very much still puts itself in a position to win. And what we're seeing repeatedly now is they've got a knack. They've got that sort of it factor that when the game is close late, they typically find a way to win. We saw it in Boston when the Rangers were trailing one to nothing in the third period. 50 minutes went by and they hadn't scored a goal in that game. And then, bam, all of a sudden they score and then they find a way to win in overtime. And we saw it in Toronto where early in the third period, Austin Matthews counter punches for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They tie the score at two to two. And the Rangers responded, and they end up winning that one running away by a 5-2 to two score. So all of these things are sort of the recipe for success for the Rangers. And it, again, it comes down to just being disciplined, being patient, and sticking to that structure. And that is what I believe has been the thing that's kind of stood out to me the most in this past week that's gotten them back to their winning ways. The defensive stuff, though, got to give some credit here because we – Certainly were critical of where they stood in that regard last week. And now the last three games, they've only allowed four goals. The defense has been much better, particularly with the odd man rush stuff. But I also think we talked about net front protection. That was an area where they seemed to be getting a little too loose. I think giving up too many opportunities right around the crease or in that high danger slot area. And we've seen way fewer of those opportunities for the opposing team in the last couple games. The Leafs had a couple, Peter Laviolette called them waves, where they were able to penetrate off the rush, but it wasn't as prevalent as it had been when the Rangers were losing those games a week or so ago, and they cleaned it up pretty quickly. I think they clamped down on it later in the game when they had to. Particularly, though, I was really impressed with how methodical they were in Boston. I talked about patience. If you were watching that game at home, or in the arena, as I was, it felt like a slog for a while. It was very low event, not the most exciting or entertaining hockey game you're going to see through the first period plus, but the Rangers didn't get impatient. They didn't start trying those crazy east-west passes. They didn't start taking unnecessary risks that would lead to some of those odd man rushes against that we had seen them sort of fall victim to recently. They kept plugging away. They would have uneventful shifts and accept it and just keep tight defensively, make sure that they weren't giving up a whole lot. For the whole game against the Bruins, including overtime, they only gave up 22 shots on goal. And to me, the way that they were able to grind out that game not a whole lot of space out there, a tight checking game. They've shown that they can win those type of games this season. They don't have to run and gun you. They don't have to outskill you all the time. They can play that grinding style when they need to, and they did it against one of the best in the league on Saturday and sort of grit their way to a win. And that was the feeling in the locker room. I mean, Jacob Truba, who you know loves that style of play, he was, I think, about as satisfied with a win as I've seen him after any game this season in Boston. He was proud of the way that the team stuck to the game plan, stayed structured, stayed disciplined, and found a way to win that game. And again, it's not the sexiest win the Rangers are going to have all season. Not a whole ton of highlights coming out of that one, but a huge win for them against a team that we know they've been sort of 
trading back and forth with all season for that number one spot in the Eastern Conference. And then, of course, Igor Shosturkin. We have to give him some credit here as well. I don't think he's had to be spectacular in either of his last two starts, but he's responded from that rough stretch when he was drawing the ire of some fans and especially, as we've talked about, being really hard on himself. Although, I'll tell you, he still, in my eyes, does not seem like his guard is down in that regard. He still seems like he's not super thrilled with where he's at right now. He came out for an interview following the practice on Monday at Bentley University, which, by the way, has a really nice new rink. Not not a huge rink. I think it only fits maybe two or 3,000 fans, but really nice, cool place for the Rangers to practice. They ended up deciding instead of coming home in between the games in Boston and Toronto that they would spend an extra couple days up in Massachusetts. I'm sure Peter LaViolette had something to do with that. We know he's a Massachusetts guy, and he said that he got a chance to visit with some family and some friends. And certainly we didn't mind it either. Actually, (laughs) I'm getting off topic now, but it was a nice trip for myself and also for Colin Stevenson, our buddy from Newsday, because we actually had our wives come up, and Sunday was an off day, and we got to go out to a nice dinner in the North End and enjoy the day and get a little extra family time, which was really nice. But I'm getting off traffic here. The, The Igor point I was trying to make is that That interview, Colin was trying to maybe ask him how he was feeling and if he was feeling better and how he felt about that game in Boston, and Igor was not having it. Very short answers, very brief. He he still seems like he's a bit on edge, and so I think that that is something that he's probably going to wrestle with for a lot of the season. We've seen this with him. He goes through these periods where he's not happy with how he's playing and he's really hard on himself. And maybe in some ways that drives him to be better because he certainly has been better these last couple of games. But as we talked about last week, you don't want to let that just become a thing where you're always taking it home with you, where you're always feeling like you're walking on eggshells because you're never satisfied with how you're playing. But he has been better on the ice. That's for sure. Again, If you think about these last two wins for him, the win in Boston, the win in Toronto, there aren't a whole lot of big saves where he's lunging across the crease or making a ridiculous glove save or or things like that. He didn't have to stand on his head in these games because, as we've touched on, the Rangers were much tighter defensively in front of him. But he was very, very steady in these games against some dangerous opponents. The toughest stretch, I believe, for him came in the second period in Toronto on Tuesday night. The Leafs had 17 shots on goal in that period. So that was the biggest volume shooting period the Rangers have faced in the last few games. And Igor gave up the one goal to Austin Matthews, which I think is hard to blame him for because, number one, Artemi Panarin had a turnover that led to a rush for the uh, Maple Leafs that was obviously a pretty dangerous situation. And then Austin Matthews. I mean, this dude can pick pretty much any spot he wants to put the puck. It looks like there's no accident that he leads the NHL in goals right now with 25 and like, I think, 29 games played or something like that. The guy's averaging almost a goal per game. So he's ridiculous. So I don't really fault Igor much for that one goal he gave up in the period. And the rest of the period, he was really good. He was certainly under some pressure, and he stood up to it all. So that's another thing you got to feel good about right now for the Rangers is that that little mini slump that Igor was in, he seems to have snapped out of it a bit in these last couple games. And then on the offensive side of things, 
they've really had different guys step up in each of these last three wins. Friday night, the win over Anaheim. Obviously, Chris Kreider was the story in that game. Scored twice, ends up passing Adam Graves for third on the Rangers' all-time scoring list. The guy's still only 32 years old, still has about three and a half years remaining on his contract, and is now in third place on the Rangers' all-time scoring list. It seems like almost a foregone conclusion that he is going to end up in second place. The real question is, will he pass Rod Gilbert for the all-time lead? He would probably need to get, I think, one more contract out of the Rangers to reach that stage. I mean, it's possible for him to eventually catch up to Gilbert. Gilbert has 406 goals, so Kreider at 281 is... 100 and I'm doing math really quickly in my head, 125 behind him. So a few more good seasons. We've seen him score 50 plus in a season before. So it's not out of the question that he could maybe catch up to him before the end of this contract, which again ends in about three and a half seasons. But you would imagine at that point, he'll be 36 when this contract is up. If he ends up finishing his career with the Rangers, this is a guy who keeps himself in incredible shape. If he ends up maybe signing for another year or two after that or plays into his late 30s here, I think it's very much within the the realm of possibility that he could end up being the franchise's all-time leading goal scorer, which would be a tremendous accomplishment. Now, good luck getting Kreider to talk about it. I don't know if you guys saw maybe on MSG after the game, the crowd of reporters around him trying to get him to talk about what it meant to pass Adam Graves and Kreider basically saying, I love Adam Graves, but I'm not going to talk about it. And and that just is his MO at this point. He's never going to talk about himself. He is so intensely focused on the task at hand, I think more so than certainly any athlete that I've covered and maybe any athlete that I've even observed in my 30 plus years of watching sports. But his teammates, you, you know, especially Mika Zibanejad and, and, and some of the guys that have been with him for a while that spoke after, were really proud of that accomplishment. And it really is rarefied air. And what I found interesting looking this up or in the, in the time right after he scored, if you look at the top six goal scorers in franchise history, five of the top six have retired numbers hanging at Madison Square Garden. So I've had people ask me this before. I know we've talked about this in the podcast before. It's it's certainly a foregone conclusion that number 20, Chris Kreider's number, will make it six for six and also join those guys at some point whenever he is all done with his career. But he may very well have a chance to end up as the franchise's all-time leading goal scorer, which is pretty crazy to think about. And, and really crazy to think about how many of those goals have come Since he turned 30, I did the math the other night out of the 281 goals, 104 of them have just been in the last two plus seasons since he turned 30. He has reinvigorated himself or reinvented himself maybe in some ways or evolved is probably the best word for it to become this guy who had always scored consistently 20 something goals every season. And now you feel like the bare minimum is in the thirties for him. This is a guy who's capable of scoring 40 or 50 in a season. It's because of the way that he's refined his craft, especially as we all know that net front presence over the years. So really a cool moment for Kreider, even though he certainly did not want to, talk about any of the emotions or any of the pride that came with achieving that milestone. Then you move on to the next game, 
And the hero in Boston was Vincent Trocek, who was just an absolute beast that night. Whether you talk about winning faceoffs, whether you talk about puck retrieval, which was a big topic that Truba kept talking about when it comes to admiring the way that Trocek plays the game. When you talk about sticking his nose in on the forecheck, killing penalties, just all the little things that this guy does to help this team. I think you could make an argument if you're listing the most valuable players for the Rangers so far this season. Panarin is the Hart Trophy candidate. He's number one right now. But Trocek has got to be like two or three. He's having a really solid season. Jacob Truba, I think, is definitely in that mix. He's having a really solid season. Obviously, Igor is incredibly important to this team. Mika Zibanejad, incredibly important to this team. Chris Kreider. But Trocek, in a lot of ways, when you think about the versatility and all the different facets of the game where he contributes, I mean, this guy has just been out standing. I actually wrote a story that if you guys haven't had a chance to check out yet, I I hope you will. It's up on loha.com slash sports slash rangers. And it's specifically about not only how good the Rangers have been with faceoffs this season and the jump that they've made from last year to this year is Ridiculous, really, when you think about it. They were under 50% as a team last year, 20th in the league at about 49%. This year, they're far and away the best faceoff team in the league. Number one in the league, over 55% of their faceoffs they've won so far. And Trocek is up at like 63, sometimes close to 64% on faceoffs this season, which is second overall in the NHL. The only guy who's better than him is Michael McLeod from the New Jersey Devils, and he's taken about 150 or so fewer face-offs than Trocek. So when you think about the volume and the situational usage, if you watch games, I notice this a lot in Toronto, Trocek goes out there with other lines all the time just to take the face-off, especially a, a big defensive zone kind of a draw. You'll see, for example, Mika Zibanejad's line. Instead of sending Blake Wheeler out, as the right winger on that line, he'll send Trocek out and Trocek will then take the face off and then go to the bench after the Rangers get possession. So you're just seeing him used in all these key face off situations. And it was interesting too, in talking to both Trocek and Nick Benino for that story. And Benino obviously raved about how Trocek has been their leader when it comes to the face off stuff that Michael Pekka, one of the new assistant coaches on the staff, the impact that he's had working specifically with these guys on face-offs. Now, I see it every day at practice because they pretty much every day spend time after practice doing face-off work. But Benino was telling me that it's not only that. Pekka puts together these video, I guess you can call them clips or it's a succession of videos where they're scouting the opponents before they go into the game. And then every game, Before they take the ice, the centers will have a little meeting where they go over the tendencies for each of the guys that they'll be taking face-offs against, and they do their pre-scout that way. So they're spending a lot of time talking about this. There's a big emphasis, starting with Peter Laviolette on down, on the importance of improving on face-offs and the importance of gaining more possessions that way. And it shows you that when you put the extra effort into something like that with a lot of the same players, now obviously Benino is new, but Trocek was here last year, Zabanajad was here last year, Goudreau was here last year, all of their numbers are up significantly. Trocek was really good last year. He was 56%, but now he's up 
like 8% from last year. It's really an incredible jump that they've made across the board. And again, Trocek, the leader of the pack. So I wrote about that, kind of a behind-the-scenes look on on what makes him so good and what's helped the Rangers improve so much in that area. And then you move to the game in Toronto, and it's a couple of the younger guys who end up scoring the key goals in that game. It was interesting because before the game, you go to these Canadian cities and, you know, there's a pretty big media presence in New York. Obviously, New York, as far as the United States is concerned, is probably the biggest media market that you can play in as an athlete. But you go up to Canada and the throngs of reporters that you see at these games, especially Toronto and Montreal, I mean, these locker rooms are just packed. It's like you can't move because so many reporters show up for these games. And so, one of the Toronto reporters prior to the game asked Laviolette about Lafreniere, who at the time hadn't scored in 12 straight games. And Laviolette gave really, I thought, a pretty meaningful answer. I think he certainly behind the scenes does this, but he also picks his spots to do it publicly, where he really tries to offer support of his players and make it clear that he believes in that player. And he very much did that by talking about how much he believes in Lafreniere. We've seen it with his actions. He's had Lafreniere for all 30 games so far this season on that second line with Artemi Panarin and has not wavered from that one bit, which I think means a lot to not only Lafreniere, but the entire locker room after some of the ups and downs that we saw with the lineup stuff last season. And he said it's just a matter of time before Lafreniere scores because it does feel like even though he hadn't scored in a while, he was still playing pretty well. It felt like there was a lot of situations where the shot was off target or a lot of situations where he got robbed by some pretty good saves from the opposing goalies. So it felt like Lafreniere had one coming. And then lo and behold, he goes out and scores the go-ahead goal in Toronto. Now, this was far from the prettiest goal that he's going to score. It looked to me like he was actually trying to pass the puck. He said he wasn't. It was just a shot that probably wasn't going to go on target. If you go back and watch the replay, I thought he was trying to pass it to Jimmy VC. But the shot ends up hitting Morgan Riley, defenseman for the Maple Leafs, and, and going in. So a little bit of good luck there for Lafreniere, but he was kind of due for something to reverse his fortunes there because he had run into some bad luck in some previous games. So he gets off to Schneid. He scores to end that 12-game drought. And then after Matthews tied the game back up early in the third period, it was Braden Schneider who made a great play going coast-to-coast, a guy who I think has not had a tremendous season to this point. I still think we're waiting for him to really pop and become that that physical in-your-face kind of defenseman that the Rangers expected him to be when they drafted him in the first round a few years ago. I mean, he's he's solid. He's been good, but I still think there's a lot more potential there in Schneider. And a lot of that doesn't have to do with offense, but he does have these occasional little spells where a little offense will pop for him. And that's what we saw when he not quite went coast to coast, but he went certainly well over half the length of the ice after receiving a pass from his partner, Eric Gustafson, and tucks a nice shot, a little quick shot, I think, that caught Martin Jones, the Toronto goalie, off guard to put the Rangers on top for good in that game. So contributions from all over offensively, but again, to me, this comes back to getting back to that defensive structure, tightening things up there, and then, of course, Igor getting himself back on track and As such, the Rangers have gotten themselves back in track by winning three games in a row. 
All right. So with that, this has been a long enough for a segment. We're going to pivot here to our interview with Jeff Merrick. And then after that, I'll be back to answer this week's set of Twitter questions. Now let's welcome into the show a guest who we've had before and a guest who I am excited to have again. You guys are definitely familiar with his work with Sportsnet and 32 Thoughts, and that, of course, would be Jeff Merrick, who is currently walking his dog while I am currently sitting in an airport. <laughs> so we're both so having I, fun mornings. I, I know. So if I hear an announcement and uh, will Vince Bercogliano please come up to the front immediately, uh, I should be concerned? Uh, yeah, I might have to ignore them for the time being for you, Jeff. Wow. Holy smokes. That's respect. Well, you know what? Um, I don't know that I'd want to be playing fast and loose with Canadian law enforcement agencies, but that's <laughs> that's you, man. I, I love hockey, too, but I also enjoy my liberty. So, you know, act accordingly, Vince. Act accordingly. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll, I'll have to acquiesce if they do if they do call me up there. But good thing <laughs> is I, I have I have some time till my flight and that gives us, us some time to chat. And there's that's a lot great. of things that. There's a lot of things I want to pick your brain about. I love having you on, especially to kind of get some league-wide perspective because I know you're on top sure. of the whole thing. Uh, but let's let's start specifically with the Rangers. I'm obviously in Toronto because they just played the Maple Leafs last night. They they come away with a 5-2 win. They've won three in a row. This little road trip has been great for them because they also were in Boston over the weekend and got a win over the Bruins, and they've been kind of vying for that top spot in the East with them so far this season. So, I mean, record-wise, yeah. obviously, the Rangers are in really good shape. They've been one of the best teams in the league from start to the current date. Are there things specifically about the Rangers that have impressed you? And then, you know, we could also maybe get into some things that you think, you know, when we're talking about a Stanley Cup contender, which they absolutely believe that they are, you know, what yeah. are maybe some of your concerns moving forward as well? Uh, listen, first of all, flat out Rangers are one of my favorite teams to watch this season. Uh, I love that Panarin is, you know, in the conversation for the Hart Trophy. And if we're only so easy as to shave your head, uh, to get in that consideration, I think everybody would do it. Um, I really like this team. Uh, I really did. Uh, I really do rather. Um, I, I think a lot of us didn't know what to expect from New York this season, specifically coming off what you could consider a very, how should we say, Vince? emotionally devastating playoff loss to the New Jersey Devils. Like I look at the Calgary Flames and I say they haven't been the same since they lost in the Battle of Alberta to the Edmonton Oilers a couple of years ago. It's been different. Certainly Jacob Markstrom uh, has been a different goaltender. I don't want to say that the Oilers broke the Calgary Flames, but they really significantly dented the Calgary Flames. And I wondered about the Rangers going into this season, how much emotion, how much of a, an emotional toll was that series loss going to take on them? And how much of a lift was that going to give the New Jersey Devils? The opposite has happened. The New Jersey Devils uh, are, are struggling. I know injuries have been a factor there. Um, and, and the New York Rangers are in the conversation for being one of the best teams in the NHL. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that Boston game. That was my favorite game of the weekend. That was, uh, that was the best game that I saw all weekend long, uh, both from a quality of play and both from, from an intriguing storyline point of view as well, uh, I really like Jacob Truba. I know that Jacob Truba is in everybody's cup of tea. I know that he has his detractors. I know that specifically if you play against Jacob Truba, you're not necessarily a fan. But I, I, really, I really enjoy Jacob Truba's game. And I really enjoy you know, the, uh, the old school that he brings uh, along with his game. 
Uh, and I like the fact that, you know, I'll tell you what, the code is a weird thing. Like nobody can really describe it. Nobody really knows what it is, but we know that it exists amongst players. And when Trent Frederick lined up across from Jacob Truba on Saturday and said, okay, it's payback time. My wrist is still sore. Thank you, Jacob Truba. Jacob Truba understood the moment and said, okay, like I get it. I did that. And now I'm going to answer for it. So a lot of guys in the NHL events, and you know this, there's a lot of players, even Truba's commented on this with Sebastian Ajo earlier this season. There's a lot of players that wouldn't have adhered to the code and said, you know what? I'll stand up for my actions or uh, I'm responsible for my actions. And if you feel that I owe you one, I'll do the honors. Uh, and he did. And that's always been Jacob Truba's game. Like we see so very few players in the NHL that on a consistent basis remind us of how the NHL used to be. And I think what Truba does is a couple of things. He reminds us that this is still a physical game. This is a game where you have to assume contact whenever you're on the ice, specifically when you're stepping over the blue line or starting a rush. And also he reminds us that even though it was more defined years ago, there still is a code and an honor amongst players. If I do you dirty, you get a chance to get back at me or I will answer the bell uh, if you feel that I need to atone for whatever sin, perceived sins you think of have occurred. I, I like Jacob Truba. He, re he reminds me of the way the game used to be played, but he can do it in an environment where we don't really talk about the old school anymore. I know I sort of blathered on about that, but I, I got I got I got all the I I got all the time in the world for a number of players on this team. I think Jacob Truba might be top of that list. No, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because not, not even the fight itself, but the way that he spoke about it so matter of factly after the game, where he said, Listen, "Yeah, if somebody hit me in the head with a stick, I'd want to fight them too." And then he said, "All I had to do was answer the bell and move on," and he's absolutely fine with that. And it's he he's an interesting character to me, getting to know him over the years because he. He's a pretty soft-spoken guy. He he gets emotional when he talks about his wife and going to med school, and you know it's been publicized that he got into painting over the summer. And he's he's kind of yep. a guy who's, who's pretty in touch with his emotions and his feeling, and I think is very thoughtful in most walks of life. But when it comes to the game, he takes sort of a straightforward approach to that. He likes to play the game hard. If somebody yep. wants to come at, come at him for laying one of those big hits. You know, even though I think to me it gets tiresome to see guys when a clean hit occurs have to answer and fight for that, but he's he takes it as part of the game and he steps up and does it every time he's challenged and then he moves on. So he he really is this interesting character because the way that he plays the game would make you think he's got one type of personality, but away from the ice, he really is a much different person. But I think that hard edge that he brings has been exactly what Peter Laviolette has wanted to infuse into this roster and, and he is clearly clearly the leader for them in that regard you know there's uh the, the other thing about that game too is it reminded us of something very specific you know on either my radio show or my podcast you know every now and then i sort of you know get nostalgic and think about a lot of the great rivalries that have been lost in the nhl specifically back when it was a six-team league so maybe top of that list was it the Detroit Red Wings and the Montreal Canadiens? That was a tremendous and often violent rivalry between those two teams. No love lost between the two. Um, you know, if you 
if you if you recall, oh, I don't know if any of your listeners will recall this one. They may not have even been alive, obviously. But in 1955, the Richard riot, that was a Detroit-Montreal game. And that was a forfeit. I believe it was the last forfeit game uh, in the NHL. But that was the Wings and that was the Montreal Canadiens. And all those Detroit Red Wings players... You know, all talked about how dirty Rocket Richard was and he got finally what was coming to him. And like it was like you go back, whether it's, you know, Jack Adams or Gordy Howe or Ted Lindsay, like all these guys talking like so negatively about Rocket Richard. And you could hear like all the anger and vitriol in their voice. And you say to yourself, man, this rivalry really is for keeps. And I think the other great rivalry that's been lost that, you know, we saw a glimpse of on Saturday is the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins. And there was that era in the late 60s and early 70s where that was the best rivalry in the NHL, period. Like, a lot of Toronto fans will tell you, no, it's Montreal, Toronto. Not a chance. It was the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins. The games took four hours. Uh, There were two teams that were at the height of their powers. I still maintain that that Rangers team was one of the best teams to never win a Stanley Cup. You know, in that rivalry, the Boston Bruins won a pair and the Rangers didn't. They probably should have won at least one along the way there. Books have been written about it. I encourage all you listeners to check out Jay Moran's book on the, on that very specific era of the Boston Bruins and the New York Rangers. And I'm watching this game on, on Saturday, Vince, and I'm saying to myself, you know, this is what all the old-timers talk about. This is what all those old players talk about, where you had, you know, the president of the New York Rangers placing a bounty on someone's head on the Boston, very publicly too, Vince. Like that's, that's the nature of how, uh, of, of this rivalry of how violent it was and how much legitimate animosity existed between these two teams. And I know it may sound kind of crass, but I kind of got that soap and warm water feeling about, you know, the Rangers and the Boston Bruins, two elite teams, skill level is high, who really don't like each other. Can we please have seven games of this in the postseason? Yeah, that would that would definitely be a lot of fun. And it's interesting, too, because you look at the first meeting they had earlier in the season, it was kind of wide open, high-flying. The final score, I believe, was 7-4 to four in that one for the Rangers. And then you look at what happens on Saturday. And Saturday is a tight-checking game, not a lot of space out there, very defensive-minded. And, and the Rangers, you know, find a way to win that one as well. So it, it feels like it's got this sort of punch-counterpunch feel to it. And I love it. It, it leads me into something else that I want to ask you about because you look at the Eastern Conference right now, and obviously those two yeah. teams have been off and running. They've been sort of trading that number one spot in the conference all season so far. And then beyond that, you know, you've got Toronto, who's come on stronger of late. You've got Florida, who you feel like has a quality team coming off the run that they came off last year. I, you know, I was big on Carolina and New Jersey coming into the season. They both struggled a bit out of the gate, but I still believe. You know, Caroline, I think, got to sort out the goaltending stuff, but I still believe that yeah. they have the, the rosters to make some noise. I mean, how do you – do you see the Eastern Conference right now as, as a two-team race, or does history tell us it's always going to be wider than that? You know, I mean, history usually tells us it's going to be wider than that. I mean, right now it does look like a two-team race, but what's the story of this season? Well, the number one story of this season has been goaltending. Um, but other than that, I mean, the story of the season is wild streaks – you know, a team goes on an eight-game win streak, then immediately turns around and goes to an eight-game losing streak. Like, I, I still, at the end of this, still think that the Carolina Hurricanes are going to turn things around. And you saw what they did to the Vegas Golden Knights. Like, that is, okay. Like, I remember, you know, if, if you looked at the schedule at the beginning of the season and you said, okay, there's a 
Wednesday in late December, where the Vegas Golden Knights are facing off against the Carolina Hurricanes. How are we going to position this one? Well, clearly, this might be a Stanley Cup preview. Now, Vegas has lived up to their end of the bargain, and they may be the best team in the NHL right now. Carolina, quite the opposite. Have injuries been an issue? Yes. Has goaltending been an issue? Of course. And they're still very much in the goalie market because of it. But, you know, I, I still think that there's a lot of runway here for teams to turn things around. I do wonder um, about uh, not just Carolina, but New Jersey, and look at it and say, you know, I have a hard time believing that Tom Fitzgerald, the general manager of the New Jersey Devils, looks at this season and says, you know what? These guys haven't earned a trade or they don't need something. There's key injuries, mainly to Dougie Hamilton here still with the New Jersey Devils. We don't know if he'll play again this season. Uh, there's a lot of goaltending issues with the New Jersey Devils. I don't know that they look at Vitek Vanacek as more than the backup goaltender and Akira Schmid has struggled. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if maybe early in the new year we see a blockbuster and the New Jersey Devils go out and address both getting one top four defenseman and a starting netminder. I've wondered about Calgary with either Markstrom or Noah Hannafin or maybe both, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I mean, right now it's looking like it's, it's, it's two teams, but I, history does tell us that, you know, teams, teams can pick up momentum pretty quickly in this NHL. So I'm, I'm not quite prepared yet to say that it's just a two team race in the East. I mean, could we have, it sounds like we could have a situation where Jersey and Carolina are both competing for whichever goaltenders are out there on the market. I believe that 100%. And I, well, I mean, in, in one sense, like if I'm, if I'm the New Jersey Devils and let's just use Jacob Markstrom, for example, I mean, that wouldn't make sense to me for New Jersey as long as Calgary retains which would mean the New Jersey Devils would have to give up uh, you know, something significant if Calgary is going to retain on salary. Uh, and, and he would be like their number one for the next few seasons. I don't know if New Jersey is looking for a number one goal. T- or, uh, I don't know if Carolina is looking for a number one goaltender for the next few seasons. I still think very much they have that belief that Pyotr Kachetkov is going to be that guy long-term for the New Jersey, for the, uh, for the Carolina Hurricanes. So, I mean, are they looking for, you know, a, a solid backup or a 1A for Pyotr Kachetkov? Because even though Frederick Anderson is on the road to recovery and looking like he'll come back, I mean, he's had, you know, a hospital bracelet problem pretty much his entire career and certainly the last few years. So I don't know if they're looking for a number one, but New Jersey is clearly out there looking for a number one. So are they looking for the same goaltender? Maybe, but I think, I think New Jersey's looking for a number one and Carolina's looking for a one a. Yeah. We've talked about some of the competition here and what their needs might be. And I've had this conversation with a few people recently with the Rangers. They're at the stage now where it's no longer about, you know, what makes them good enough to get to the playoffs. It's about what makes them good enough to win the cup. Cause that is obviously the goal. That's what they're aiming for. Yeah. They've made, they've made the playoffs a few years in a row. The, the bar has been raised. So when you size up this team, I mean, to, to see them as a legitimate team that can win the whole thing. I mean, are there concerns? Are there areas where you feel like, okay, I'd like to see them improve here to really feel confident about their chances? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's a real 
complement when a team reaches one area of their development. And that's the area where they, where you look at their season and you say, you know what? <clears throat> all they need is some depth on defense. All they need is extra defensemen because as we all know, like it's a battle of attrition come playoff time. And, you know, you're going to need a, a lot of defensemen along the way because there's going to be significant injuries and you're going to need reinforcements to come in. You know, I, I look at the, um, you know, maybe the best example of that is the 2007 Anaheim Ducks where, you know, by the end, you know, as much as we talked about, you know, Scott Niedermeyer and Chris Pronger, you know, they got, <laughs> they got into the Kent Huskins and the Rick Jackmans, like really, really Joe DePentas. Like they got into these guys like pretty quick and they became valuable members of the Anaheim Ducks as they won the Stanley Cup in 2007. I kind of feel the same way about the New York Rangers. You know, and it's a real compliment. I mean, if anything, they're probably just looking for depth pieces. And I think the main thing for them is, um, you know, can Igor Shosturkin turn himself into that world beater that we know he is? Uh, and can they stay healthy? Like, it, it's, a, it's a team that does a lot of things really well. And they're getting, you know, they're getting the Peter Laviolette first-year bump. Um, that's clear. Uh, I think more than anything, they need health. Um, some extra depth on defense for a long run. And that's probably it. Like I, I look at the Rangers and I, I don't see, I mean, you're closer to it than I am, Vince. You tell me if I'm, base, if I'm off base on this one. I don't see a ton of problems with the New no, York Rangers. No, like, I, I, I really don't. Like as long, as long as they stay healthy and the injured players get healthy and come back, I think the Rangers look really good, man. Well, yeah, I think the one thing you touched on there is the health because two of the young forwards who they were counting on to play, whether it was top six or top nine roles in, in Capo Caco and Philip Hedl yeah. are out for the f foreseeable future. Now, you know, Caco, I've been told they expect him to miss significant time, but they do expect that he will be back before the end of the regular season. It's some kind of a left leg injury that he's dealing with. So that one's a little more straightforward. The, the more questionable one is Hedl because we know that he yeah. has a history of concussions. And this thing has lingered. He's been out now for 20 games and counting, and it doesn't look like he's any closer to coming back. I mean, this is more yep. of a quality of life issue, I believe, at this point with him. And if they don't have him, if, if his season is in jeopardy in any way, then their center depth, I think, comes into question. Because as much as I think they like Nick Benino as a fourth-line center, when you're asking him to center your third line and then you look at the rest of the center depth in the organization, it feels like that might be a position they need to address. And then right wing is a position where they can – I know they're looking for depth as well. Kako being hurt, and they really don't have a ton of right wingers right now who you feel like you could plug into a top six kind of spot if you needed to. So I believe that that's what they're going to be looking for. Now, the question is, you and I have spoken about this a bit, the cap space thing. And we know yeah. the Rangers are willing to be aggressive at the trade deadline, but now if, if, if Hedl and Kako do come off LTIR, all of a sudden the cap space that it looks like they have, if you look on Cap Friendly or Puckpedia right now, will vanish. And they could yep. be in a situation where they're really tight on cap space. So I think that they might have to be bargain hunting. I mean, they're definitely going to want to add a forward, I believe. But the question is, how much are they going to have to spend on that forward? It might not be very much. I'm curious for you, like, we're still months away, but how do you size up the trade deadline? Do you think it's going to be robust? Do you think the options are going to be limited? Do you think that there, you know, should hopefully, if the Rangers are looking for a guy who's in the million, $2 million type of range that can make an impact for the B guys, who, who can do that? I mean, it, 
or, you know, even further, I guess, are, are there big names who you're really closely monitoring? Like, how do you sort of size up this market as a whole? You know, I think a lot of us are looking at Lindholm in Calgary. I think a lot of us are looking at a lot of players in Calgary, whether it's Chris Tanev, whether it's Noah Hannafin, uh, or the aforementioned Lindholm, maybe Jacob Marks, or maybe Dan Vladar. Uh, I think we're looking there. Now that the Ottawa Senators have come to the realization, and that's a really tough loss on Wednesday night against the Arizona Coyotes um, in Jacques Martin's uh, re-debut as, as head coach of the uh, of the Ottawa Senators. That, that's a real tough one. So they're in selling mode as well. I mean, you know, one, one of the names that I keep coming back to, and I know he's not a center, but, you know, Anthony DeClaire, and I know the Rangers have already had one go around with Anthony DeClaire, but he brings that speed element uh, to, a, to a team, which is just, you know, so, uh, so important. Uh, come playoff time, that that's someone that I that I, I keep my eyes on. There's a lot of players on San Jose. Uh, if you're looking for depth defensemen, I think that's where you probably want to go shopping. Uh, not just for depth too, but I, I believe that Mario Ferraro is available uh, with the San Jose Sharks um, at a very reasonable price too. Um, but I, I don't think that the actual deadline itself, because this has been the this has been the the theme in the last couple of years, specifically last year. You know, all the big names go before. I think what teams have realized is you want to get if you're if you're going to make a move, do it as early as you can. Now I know the salary cap complicates that. I we all understand it, but if you can make your moves early, because you want to get the players in, acclimatize your organization, your rhythm, find out how the team plays, etc., 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 and wait until a trade deadline. Well, sometimes that takes too long. And I mean, we'll see. I mean, there'll be other teams that drop out along the way that where you might have thought that they were going to be buyers, they turn into sellers. You know, now we're really thinking about the Buffalo Sabres and what they're going to do. I mean, that season, this season has been just terrible for them. So I think there's a number of guys uh, and a number of a number of teams that we have our eyes on. But I, I don't think that the the trade deadline market yet has really clearly defined itself other than Calgary. And we did think that Craig Conway was going to make a lot of these moves in the offseason. He's taken a couple of runs at re-signing guys. Uh, doesn't seem as if that's going to happen. Um, you know, there were a lot of discussions with Noah Hannafin. They went nowhere. Um, you know, Lindholm is, is the obvious one. And, you know, we talked about Boston earlier. I can still, I mean, you know how Boston feels about their right shot centers. I mean, I can see the Boston Bruins uh, making a significant play there. Do they have the assets to get it done? Big question mark. Um, but I, I don't see the actual trade deadline, Vince, being huge because it hasn't been. But, you know, starting maybe about a month out, I think you'll start to see really a flurry of activity. Don't forget, and it's mainly because of the salary gap, this isn't a league that starts trading early. Like trades really don't start happening in the NHL till January. So once we flip the calendar, then I think you're going to start to see some movement in the NHL. And, and it's an interesting point about wanting to get it done before that March 8th deadline. Cause that's so close to the end of the season. You're really, you're really only oh, getting yeah. players for the playoff run and you're not giving them a whole lot of time to adjust. So the earlier you can do it, the better, you know, the yep. Rangers are, they're in a comfortable spot cause they have some cushion in the standings right now. They're, they're continuing to win. So there's no huge urgency right now, but I think, specifically the Heedle and Kako situation are, are ones to monitor because I think that will dictate how much they feel like they need to add an impact forward on this roster. But Jeff, I, I know you got stuff to do. I got a flight to catch. So I'm, I'm going to let you go on that note, but I really, really do appreciate the time. Love having you on. 
You didn't get called for passport check. Congratulations, Vince. And <laughs> not yet, at least. I got a little time, but we'll see. <laughs> Thanks, pal. Let's talk again soon. And we're back. Had a lot of fun with that conversation with Jeff. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And what a multitasker that guy is. Not only was he walking his dog, but he ends up in his backyard in freezing cold Canada playing with the Frisbee with his dog while he was doing that interview with us and never missed a beat. So that's a real pro right there for you folks. And Conversation was interesting, hit on a whole lot of different topics. I'm sure a lot of you were interested in the trade deadline stuff. Jeff definitely has his finger on the pulse of that, as especially does his partner on the 32 Thoughts podcast, Elliot Friedman. And as he said, you know, I see some of the questions even for this week as far as the Twitter stuff is concerned. Everybody wants to know who the targets are going to be. And I'm putting together a list. I I teased this a couple weeks ago. After the holidays, I am planning to publish a list of maybe some preliminary targets, but there's still a lot of things materializing right now and a lot to be determined before we get to that March 8th deadline. So it's really hard to nail down that, you know, the Rangers are really interested in this one particular guy. But he touched on some of the interesting situations. A lot of people are keeping their eye on Calgary because it certainly seems like they are going to be sellers. A lot of people are keeping their eye on San Jose because it looks like they will be sellers. And he mentioned Anthony Duclair, which is the guy who I've heard his name associated with the Rangers a couple times now. How strong of an interest the Rangers would actually have, that's to be determined. But at $3 million a year, if the Sharks were convinced to eat half of that, At 1.5, the Rangers could probably swing a player along those lines. We've talked about the salary cap restraints before, so a lot to keep an eye on, but I do believe that it is ultimately going to be some kind of a depth forward that the Rangers target, preferably one who's versatile enough to A, play multiple positions, and B, in a pinch, if needed, plug into one of those spots in the top six, as we see with the Rangers missing Hedl and Kako, They need somebody who can move up and have enough skill to play in that sort of position if needed. So that that would be my inkling as far as what they are going to be targeting right now. But again, we'll have more conversations about that in the coming week. Beyond that, big thanks again to Jeff. Really do appreciate his time. And now let's get into this week's set of Twitter questions. And we will start with Zando Blando, who wrote, I know it may be a while, but when this team is fully healthy again, how do you think the lineup shakes out? Phil was looking good with Brad and Lafreniere, but Troach has been amazing. Do you make a swap there? The fourth line has been electric. Do they stay together and Benino sits? Question mark. Johnny B? Question mark. Well, yeah, so a lot of stuff to touch on there. As far as Hedl, because I saw a couple people ask this question, I told you guys last week, I don't think there's any chance we're seeing him before the holidays at this point. I'm curious. Team is off today on Wednesday, but they will practice on Thursday. Is there any chance we see him skate with the team? I kind of think not, but you never know. I feel like every time we go to the rink, there's a little bit of uh, curiosity about will today be the day when he finally gets to practice with the team. But I think at this point, they're going to get through this holiday break. The NHL takes three days in a row off for Christmas. 
And then in the new year, at some point, you hope to ease him back in. I think fingers crossed for everybody. Maybe you see him sometime at least practicing with the team in January. But that is, there's no real set timetable. Like people are asking a lot about timetable for him, timetable for Kako. Kako, there's more of a timetable because we know that he has this left leg injury. And even though we don't know exactly what it is, NHL teams are, for whatever reasons, reluctant to announce that kind of information. We know that Kako has a timetable where they expect him back, I've heard, before the trade deadline. So might mean February or something like that. I think they have a firmer grasp with him. With Heedle, there's no real timetable because nobody really knows. This is such a touchy situation that could have setbacks at any moment, and, and it's very delicate just because brain injuries are probably the most unpredictable type of injury that you can have. So Hedl, I feel like there's still a whole lot up in the air there. But, of course, the Rangers are holding out hope that he will be a significant player for them at some point again in this season. And then, yeah, the question is valid. Where do you put him in the lineup? And I do think that even though I've said before, and clearly Laviolette was curious to see this look, that it makes a lot of sense to play him with Panarin, and that was obviously the intention when the Rangers started the season. I think given him coming back from a very serious situation, you probably don't want to force feed him a ton of ice time right off the bat. So my inkling would be he would come back in a third-line role. His minutes would be monitored very closely. You want to see how he looks coming off of this type of injury and coming off of a significant layoff. He's now missed 20 games. So to me, I think the third line would be the spot for him. It's clear that if you look at that third line right now, that as much as I think Benino is a valuable player for the Rangers, that he is not a center you want consistently playing in your top nine. So there's a very obvious spot for Hedl. You can plug him in on the third line. It might mean, I would think, playing with Will Cooley as his left wing. And then on right wing, that is a pretty clear landing spot, I think, for Capo Caco when he is ready to return. So you could sort of have this new version of a kid line that I've seen some fans speculating about. I think a fully healthy team, that's what you're looking at right now. You don't mess with the top six quite yet. Obviously, the Panarin-Trocek-Lafreniere line has been the Rangers' best, and LaViolette has publicly said he does not want to touch that for good reason. So I absolutely think you keep them intact, at least for the time being. Maybe if Hedl is lighting up and you feel like you want to make that switch later in the season, you consider it. But right now, that line has been so good, I don't think that he's going to touch that one. And even the the, t- the top line, or you know, you could make the argument that really the second line with Chris Kreider, Mika Zibanejad, and Blake Wheeler, I wrote about this the other day as well. LaViolette has publicly now multiple times in the last week or so said that he feels like Blake Wheeler, his last four or five games have been his best as a Ranger. And I think it's kind of hard to deny that. You you look at Wheeler right now. Wheeler has, I think, six points in his last four games. And it's starting to click a little bit more with that line. Spoke to Wheeler about that the other day, that practice at Bentley. And Wheeler said that he's starting to get to the point where he's doing less thinking and more playing. And a lot of that comes from the thinking that he's doing off the ice and the conversations that he's having off the ice with Zabanajad and Kreider. He talked about how much those two guys 
love talking hockey, how much they love communicating and going through all these different situations. I mean, I can tell you just from being in the locker room all the time, Zabanajad and Kreider are always talking. A lot of times right after a game, you see them clearly wanting to work some detail out. And so those two guys are so, I think, good at this point at communicating with each other and sort of making those little adjustments on the fly and talking through all these different situations that now Wheeler, I think, is starting to feel a little more comfortable getting into that discussion and understanding what they want as well. That that was what we were talking with him about the other day, and it's showing. Now, is that line perfect? No. Is Wheeler, ideally, as we've talked about, long-term for the course of a full season, going to be a guy that you want playing in your top six, on your top line at this stage of his career? I think there are legitimate questions about that. Is he equipped at this stage of his career with diminishing speed and diminishing production? Is that the best spot for him? Maybe not, but right now the Rangers don't have many other options. And I think for that reason, rather than pulling someone up from your fourth line like Jimmy Vc or rushing a prospect like Brennan Othman, who, oh, by the way, still is playing strictly left wing for Hartford and has not, at least to my knowledge, had a look at right wing yet, rather than forcing something like that because of the cushion that the Rangers have built themselves in the standings, I think you let it ride with Wheeler for the time being right now, especially given the fact that that line has been better in these last four or five games. Again, Wheeler... Six points, I think it is, in his last four games. So he's been better. Laviolette has been very vocal about that. He has had private conversations with them, to my understanding, about that as well. So I think the top six, you wouldn't touch those right off the bat when one of the injured guys comes back. When Hedl and Kako come back, it makes a lot of sense to put them on the third line, monitor their minutes a little bit, let them sort of feel things out there. You know that they've had success playing together in the past. And I think Cooley kind of works as a bigger body, a more physical guy who can do some of the grunt work on that line, but also has enough scoring touch to play with skilled players like that. So that would be, I think, at least in this moment, in this snapshot, what you would probably want for your top three lines. And then the fourth line, listen, it's a good point. I do think that VC, Gaudreau, and Pitlick have clicked, and they've been really effective, especially as a defensive matchup line. We talked a lot in the offseason about LaViolette liking to have one of those defensive matchup lines, and we all felt like maybe it would be the third line, and that's what it looked like was the intention when he started the season with Vincent Trocek as the center on that third line. But what how it's kind of evolved is now to the point where it looks like Clearly, the evidence shows that that Goudreau-VC-Pitlick line is the one that he wants to throw out there for some of those tough defensive assignments, and they've done really well in that role lately. Earlier in the season, they were spending very little time in the offensive zone, defending way too much, kind of getting caved in, but that has not been the case recently. I think they've been really effective. I think they've flourished and really embraced that role. Talking to some of those guys about it, they love that responsibility. But I also believe that Nick Benino was here, brought here to play. And so I do think that a fully healthy team probably has Pitlick coming out of the lineup, even though I think some of the speed and forechecking elements that he brings have been a positive. I think it would be more likely that that fourth line would morph if everybody's fully healthy, and that's obviously a huge if. But if everybody was fully healthy, you would probably see 
VC with Benino in the middle and then Goudreau shifting to one of the wings with Pitlick being your extra skater and Johnny Bradzinski probably going back to his role as the Hartford captain. Although at this point you'd have to put him through waivers and he might be a guy that would tempt other teams. So that would be a little worrisome for the Rangers there. But I I do believe that, you know, him and Pitlick would probably be the guys that come out of the lineup in that fully healthy situation. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Bobby Too Slow, who wrote, Laviolette in Philly was an angry guy with a scowl. Here he seems generally calm and rational. Has he mellowed over time? Just a changed approach to better match the vibe of the team leaders, question mark? It's refreshing after a bad call to see the coach's eyes not bulging out of his head. Well, number one, I think he's definitely mellowed. I talked to Kevin McCarthy, who was a longtime assistant coach with Laviolette. I believe he was an assistant coach for him in four of his six coaching stops. I think he was with him in Carolina, Philly, Nashville, and Washington for a feature that I did over the summer. And he very much said that Laviolette doesn't have as many of those moments where he gets loud with the team, not as much yelling, not as much of that really hard disciplinarian kind of stuff. That has, I think, evolved over the years, especially when you consider maybe the evolution of players and what they respond to this generation versus previous generations. But I absolutely do believe that there are moments where he is firm there are times certainly when we've seen him not be pleased with the team. And I believe that that was expressed in the locker room. The most recent example that comes to mind and probably the most obvious example all season was following that shutout loss in Washington a couple weeks ago. If you watch that post-game press conference, he was not happy. He did not want to talk to us a whole lot that night after the game. And I certainly think that he let the team know how he felt after that one. And you also see the way that he runs practices. I mean, he's demanding at these practices. So, I don't think that he's completely gone soft, but I just think he's picking his spots a little bit more, which I think is probably something that comes with experience and, again, comes with the evolution of players and understanding the type of players that you're dealing with now, kids that are in their 20s now or even you know a lot of the Rangers guys who are in their early 30s. They are different, I think, than the guys who were playing when Laviolette first started coaching In the early 2000s, that was a a completely different generation. So I think he's adapted to that. And I also think he's learned from past experiences and yelling all the time. And and McCarthy said he didn't yell all the time. I think, I think that reputation a lot of, in a lot of ways came from that HBO thing that was sort of behind the scenes leading up to that winter classic with the Rangers and the Flyers a decade or so ago, whenever it was. And I remember the one scene that, as soon as the Rangers hired Laviolette, a lot of fans were sending me where he really gives it to his team at intermission. That, I think, sort of developed this reputation for him. And he certainly is capable of those moments, but I, maybe it didn't happen quite as frequently as the outside perception was. But McCarthy told me it's decreased over the years. And again, he picks his spots with it more now. I, I absolutely still believe that there is more of a demanding, disciplined accountability type of element to the team this year than there was under Gerard Gallant. I think he has probably yelled at the team, if we're talking about 
you know, how many times it's happened. I think in his short time, he's probably had more moments where he's hammered the desk or whatever it might be to get his point across. But I, I think that he's also a guy who relates to players on more of a human level, pulls guys aside to address them in that way instead of yelling at the whole group. I think the yelling at the whole group thing is pretty rare. I think it's much more frequent that he's pulling guys aside individually to talk about things. We see it after pretty much every practice. It seems like every practice, and maybe this is a strategic rotation that he does, but it seems like each day he's talking to a different guy after practice, and you hear it from the players as well. Blake Wheeler was talking about it the other day. Even at his age, it sounded like after Wheeler had played a couple games in a row that Laviolette was happy with, that Laviolette made a point of taking Wheeler, Zabanajad, and Kreider aside to point out what he was liking about their game and give them some encouragement that way. And Wheeler said, even at this stage of his career, that kind of positive reinforcement from your coach is meaningful. And so I think... He does a lot of that. I think there's a lot of propping guys up that's happening as well. It's not only yelling at guys and riding guys about things that you don't like. I think he builds guys up behind the scenes quite a bit, and I think that that has resonated in the locker room as well. I think communication has improved, and occasionally that might mean being angry and getting your point across that way, but I think there's been a lot more of these private conversations that have been generally positive, generally building guys up, or if you are correcting things, doing it in a way where you're making sure you're on the same page with them. It seems just like the level of communication is improved, and that communication, it seems to me, at least from Laviolette, comes in a lot of different forms. All right, let's get to our final question, which comes from Michael Silvers, who wrote, What's little Vincent getting for Christmas? Big topic of conversation around the Ricogliano household right now. And it's funny. It's very cute in my eyes. You guys know that I'm really into my food and my family, my big Italian family. Obviously, we're big eaters. We love to talk about food all the time. We love to try to eat good things. And you guys know when I'm on the road, we, we seek out a lot of good restaurants. Molly, Colin, and I went to an awesome sushi restaurant in Toronto the other night, went to a really good Filipino restaurant one night, took the wives out in Boston to a really good Italian restaurant. So obviously, we, you know, we love our food. My son very much, I think, takes after me in this regard because this is the first Christmas now, he's two and a half or so, where I think he's understanding the concept. He's asking, when is Santa Claus coming? He understands that Christmas is coming and gifts will be coming. And so that's made it a lot more fun, as you might imagine. And so a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I sat him down and said, all right, well, let's make your list for Santa Claus. What, what do you want Santa Claus to bring you this year? And every single thing that he named was a food item. So <laughs> we're basically just going to have a lot of food wrapped under the tree this year. And, and interestingly, his favorite thing is probably fruit. Like he, this guy is just a fruit fanatic. He absolutely goes crazy for it. So Berries, he's really into the berries. He asked for blueberries and strawberries and raspberries and blackberries. Uh, and he's really into oatmeal in the morning recently. So he, he keeps asking if Santa Claus is going to bring him oatmeal. So basically his entire list consists of food. So there will be some food items, but there's also going to be some other stuff for sneaking in there. <laughs> I asked him if you want to add any toys to the list. And listen, this is from a father's standpoint, it makes it kind of proud. He's pretty practical. He was like, no, daddy, I, I have toys. I'd rather get the, the fruit. 
So, so yeah, his list is all food. But, yeah, we're working a couple other surprises in there for sure. Very much looking forward to Christmas. I'm sure most of you parents out there are probably smiling hearing this as well because it feels, I can feel it coming already. I'm sure it's only going to intensify with each passing year that it sort of reinvigorates your Christmas spirit to have a a little one in the house, someone who's going to get really excited about Santa Claus and someone who's going to get really excited about the holidays. And I'm sure that's only going to increase every year, at least for the next handful of years. So that that's, that's cool. I'm very excited for that. I I certainly hope all of you are going to have a great Christmas. Everybody who celebrates, I will note now as we're closing this episode that as we've done, I think pretty much every year, This week now between Christmas and New Year's, I'm going to be taking off from the podcast. I'm going to be running around kind of like a crazy man next week. The Rangers have games at home Friday and Saturday this weekend. I'll obviously be covering both of those. Then they go into that three-day Christmas break, and we've been kind of in this tradition of alternating every year. So one year we spend it in New York with my family. The next year we spend it in Maryland with my wife's family. Now this is a Maryland year, so... I think my wife, the plan right now we're talking about is her and my son are going to pick me up from Madison Square Garden after that game on Saturday night, and we're going to drive straight to Maryland. We'll get our three days down there with her family, and then I'll be driving right back to New York on the 27th next Wednesday to cover another game back at Madison Square Garden. Now, Wednesdays are usually the day that we record the podcast. I obviously won't have the time to do it that day. And just with all the craziness of the holidays, we're going to take one week off from the podcast. So I will be back the following week. This will be the final podcast of the year 2023. What a year it's been. I'll have a new podcast for you the first week to start 2024. So I want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas, a happy holiday season, a happy new year. I want to thank everybody who's followed along all year long. It has been my pleasure to do this every week, and I hope you guys have been enjoying it at least close to as much as I do because I love doing this and I hope that comes through and I hope this gives you a little reprieve and a little something to look forward to every week. So thank you. Thank you to all of you. Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy New Year to all of you. And I will talk to you guys once again in the year 2024. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.